welcome to the Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento. Or maybe in today's case, we should call it the Five Three Froyo, because today we're talking with Lee Flugraff, owner of Yola Berry Yogurt in Davis, California. Now, right now it's late. I'm tired. Everyone in my house is asleep. But I just had a couple Captain Crunch chocolate chip cookies and a glass of Nesquik, so I'm ready to go. If you're wondering where I got Captain Crunch chocolate chip cookies, well, I made them just so I could have the cookie dough so I could make Captain Crunch cookie dough ice cream, where I actually took the Captain Crunch and steeped it in the milk and cream, Christina Tosi style, so I could make Captain Crunch milk ice cream and then put the cookie dough in there. See, this this is why I decided to start a food podcast, because I spend my free time, of which I have very little, making these ridiculous things because I enjoy it so much. But anyway, back to my introduction. I had a blast talking to Lee about his journey to owning the popular local yogurt spot. Because as you'll hear, it was a long and windy road for him to arrive at owning Yoloberry. Lee has worked in restaurants his entire life, starting at the age of 14. He worked his way up to being an executive chef in Napa, owned his own restaurant in Santa Rosa, and worked as a manager at restaurants in the Sacramento area. But he's also suffered his share of loss in his business life and personal life and had to find ways to bounce back. If you haven't been paying attention, there was a big boom of frozen yogurt places over the past 15 years or so. But there's also been a staggering number of places that have closed in recent years, even before COVID. No more big spoons around here. The pink berries have all dried up in this area. I can't think of where there's still a yogurt land. There were three yogurt shops in Natomas just a few years ago where I live, and now there's none. And Lee and I talk about the so-called fad of frozen yogurt, and why his spot has continued to thrive even through COVID. Just a quick note on this episode, I've known Lee for a number of years through mutual friends, back from when I lived and worked in Davis. But I hadn't seen him for years, and it was great to catch up with him, and for him to share the hardships he's overcome, particularly in the last several years. So with that... I bring you my conversation with Lee Flugraff, owner of Yolaberry Yogurt. Thanks for having me today, Max. Absolutely. So I always like to start, you know, this podcast is all about food and we're interviewing people in all sorts of different aspects of the industry. But I know a little bit about your background and your love of food in general and restaurants. So what was what sort of role did food play in your life growing up? What was food like at home? How did that kind of connect your family or not? Or was it was that a big thing in the house, cooking and enjoying food? Yeah, my parents were always into cooking and good food. My mom would always would be healthy. I didn't have the typical bad breakfast. I would have I would always have to have the granola and all the fresh fruit and that stuff. And that was great. But and I appreciated it later. But I always, all my friends would have like the cocoa puffs and Fruit Loops and right <laughs> the crap, the yeah, junk, junk food like that. I learned at a young age how to cook well. So, did your parent, did you guys do like family dinners at home a lot of the time, or was it? We did family dinners, but we also went out a lot too. And my parents exposed me to a lot of um, other foods. Yeah, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in North Dakota, and when I was one years old, my parents moved to Davis, California. Okay. And my dad got a professor job there at UC Davis. Got it. So you're back to, you were in Davis when it probably looked more like North Dakota still Pro- than what it looks like now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, when we moved to Davis, I think in 1964, I think there were about probably 25,000 people maybe. Yeah. It was just all around, wrapped around 
the town was wrapped around the university. Right. Tell me a little bit about your background getting into food. I know we had talked, and you mentioned your first job was as a dishwasher when you were 14, I think at the graduate in Davis. Yeah, actually, it was at, um, it wasn't at the graduate. It was at Larry Blake's when I was like 14. I probably didn't even have a work permit, but right. I, I kind of begged him for a job because I was just in, very interested in getting into the restaurant industry, even at a young age. I just liked the camaraderie of the people and just the atmosphere. So I always wanted to work, even though I didn't really have to, but I just wanted to learn. Did you fall in love even more being in the dishwasher, just being back there with the cooks and the chef and sort of seeing that? Absolutely. Kind of that, that attitude? Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the hardest uh, jobs in the kitchen is uh, being a dishwasher. Oh, yeah. Hardest Be- working person in the kitchen. And you sure. always get yelled out by everybody, the manager, the servers, the bus people. Everybody yells at the poor dishwasher back there. Usually the problem is if you do a really good job, you can't move it because <laughs> they right. don't want any. They want somebody else to, to take care of it. Yeah, it's they, hard to find someone who's going to replace stay back you. There. So you're kind of get penalized. That's funny. Yeah, I've I've worked at a couple couple different restaurants where the chef or even the manager they had a rule that if they ever saw anybody in front of the house, servers or host or anyone, give the dishwasher any grief they were going to be the dishwasher on their next shift or right. they were going to be fired. It was, there was like high reverence for the dishwasher hundred the job they did. 100%. So that's a that's where a lot of chefs start. So you started as a dishwasher and just sort of never looked back, right? You've been in restaurants your entire life since then? Absolutely. Yeah, I have no, no formal training. It's just the school hard knocks of working my way up from dishwasher to prep to cook to chef. You've done some managing as well. So what was kind of the progression or what are some of the bigger steps along the way of places you got to work where you kind of look back and sort well, of go, wow, I was chef there. I, you know, got to cook this food or create this menu. What are, tell me a little bit about your career in food. Right out of high school, I started at this place called AJ Bumps in Davis, California. It was kind of a high-end steakhouse. And people still talk about that place as they wish that it was still there mm-hmm. in Davis. I started off as kind of the salad bar guy, worked my way up. I was really efficient at what I did, so I was always moving up rapidly, really quickly. And so I started there, and I, I probably worked there off and on for about nine years. Oh, wow. You know, a long And time. then I uh, eventually made the head, not chef, but kind of the broiler cook for the okay. steaks. But we did, you know, we were in charge of that whole restaurant, of cutting all the meat from scratch. Oh, really? You had to do some butchering, essentially, I as did, well? Absolutely. Oh, wow. It was a very busy place. The place in those days were doing four or five hundred covers a night. Wow! So it was a big, big, uh, a big responsibility. Yeah, so to be when in you're... charge of all that kind of. It was kind of like conducting an orchestra. Yeah. In a restaurant, because you're just so many moving parts of people putting the food in, cooking it right, the temperatures, cooking all of it at once, and it's kind of like a flow to make it to the tables. Yeah. Right, and a steakhouse, like you said, it's high stakes because it takes yeah. a long time to cook a good thick steak, and if you right. screw it up and they send it back, it's another thirty minutes before they're you right. know, getting their and porterhouse then back. Also, it's a waste of money, and yeah. your food cost is bad, and you just have to always get it right the right. first time. Yeah. What did you learn in that process? Given now that you know you own a business, and and we'll talk we'll talk more about how you got into eventually owning your own business and even some dreams you had before that of owning other restaurants and that sort of thing. What did you learn about that part of the business of the food cost and the importance of 
the whole system, right? The kitchen doing a good job and the servers communicating. Yeah, I mean, in and... those days, we didn't even know about food cost. As us cooks, we kind of just ate what we wanted. Right. And uh, <laughs> lobster and steaks and, you know, food cost was out the window in our eyes. Okay. Now I look back and think, geez, man, the stuff we ate out of there was essentially stealing. Yeah. You know, but you don't look at it like that. They also said, you know, cooks and kitchen people could eat for free, but there was also like a limited things. Like right. Soup, salads. Yeah, maybe stuff not that the lobster. Maybe that lobster tail <laughs> and prime rim all day. <laughs> and so it was really fun. And and in those days it was very fun because it was kinda in the eighties and by about eight thirty I think most of the staff had been drinking pretty heavily. Mm, sure. Uh, in the restaurant business always been kind of a party as you're working. So we were all trading food for cocktails from the bar. And, sure, yeah. And, and and things were kind of getting a little out of hand always. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> uh, so what was the next stop from there? I know, you know, eventually you got into some to managing restaurants and doing that as well. So kind of where did your career progress? After that, there? I um, moved to Sonoma and started my career seriously and got a job right out the gate. I got a chef position at a place called Marioni's in Sonoma, California. And they were looking for a new chef, and I tried out, and I got the job, which was my first big job yeah, in, like, a real professional setting in Sonoma where they had food critics. People there are more professional. Being a server is like a career. Right. Um, the chefs and line cooks, it's their career. And so it's fun, but it's super intense. So, like, if you didn't perform well enough, and you didn't make your numbers on your food costs, you, you could be, you know, fired or, you know, it, it was the real deal. It wasn't a long way from AJ Bumps. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so were you hired as the head chef creating the menu and all that? Were you sort of the chef de cuisine under an executive chef? I was, was the executive chef. Okay. Wow. So I created the menu and I came into town virtually not knowing a soul, but a friend of mine was friends with the owners, the Marionis, and okay. they were an established big family in Sonoma. They were friends with the Sebastianis and all the wine people. So it was a big deal to get that job. I probably, at the time, looking back, I didn't realize how lucky I was, actually, to kind of just plop into this job, not knowing one person in Sonoma. Yeah. And now I'm command of this big restaurant. And I almost had to learn as I went. But, I, you know, I didn't act that way. Right. I just rolled in there and just took charge and and made the menu and I had help too with sure. the owner the kind of things the thing he wanted to do there and it was kind of California cuisine we did steak seafood a lot of pastas we also did like four or five features a night one thing was great is we had a great relationships with the wineries mm -hmm. so when the chefs of each restaurant would get together with restaurants we would do these wine tasting dinners that were very creative and people would you know, pay extra money, and we'd host those. Okay. And that was a fun, so it would bring more revenue for the restaurants, but also showcase the chef's talents on pairing wine to different dishes. Yeah, you almost get to make like a tasting menu for a wine tasting. Uh, absolutely, oh, and it's fun. Cool. People love that. Yeah. And um, that's why I was so serious of coming from, you know, my humble beginnings in Davis to this is like the show now. Right. And this is before... I don't even know if farm to fork was a word by then. Probably not, yeah. It probably I mean, wasn't. I mean, now the chef thing, it's like blown up on the Food Network. Yeah. I mean, I have friends who 
are on the Food Network, and you know that's not what being a chef's about. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Sure, like the glamour of cameras, but in actual reality, it's you know seven days a week, sixteen hour days. I mean, hard, hard work, and it's you know not that great pay. Right. I mean, you gotta really lo- love what you do. So, how did uh, Mariani's do overall? How was that? Mariani's did really well. I was there probably for about four or five years, and then it was just time to move on. Yeah. There's no really um, job security being a chef, and sure. that's another problem. So you need to really get yourself into a, either an ownership position, mostly like a partnership ownership with the owner. Right. Because a lot of owners like, hey, you know, it's nothing personal. We're going a new direction. Yeah. And that happens quite a bit to a lot of people. Yeah. And you've donated, you've done your whole life. You sold your soul to this business, somebody else's business. Yeah. You know, you never get any money from being a chef if they're going a new direction. Yeah. Right. There's not even contracts or anything. I mean, you know, hey, we'll bring you on for two years. No. It's just, no. Yeah. But maybe there are now. I maybe. Mean, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah I, but, but maybe I think the chefing, I guess, fellowship probably has gotten more mainstream. So also, I know. There's just better working conditions in sure. the kitchen now. Yeah. Just in the last few years where like, you know, in my day, the chef would ridicule you. I never did that, but like ridicule some of the workers, fire them on the spot, throw pots and pans at them, crazy stuff, long hours, no breaks. I mean, in my day, if you asked to take a break, you know, you'd probably get get fired almost. <laughs> it was just so bad. So you talked about, I mean, that instability is sort of seeing that and learning that what led you to start thinking, you know, maybe I want to get more into the management side and eventually owning my own restaurant or business. When did that part of your career and that idea start? Um, that started probably 1999. I've always aspired to own my own business. I've always had the backing of my dad and we've always talked about, you know, I'm going to own my own restaurant someday. I never went to college, so I've been the school hard knocks always. And so I said, I'm going to own a restaurant. So I, in 1998 or 99, I actually got my first ownership and I opened a a barbecue restaurant. Paul Lunavina from Ludi's Barbecue was a good friend of mine, and I helped him open that place up. At the the Ludi's location in Woodland? In Woodland, yeah. Yeah, and Paul was a good restaurant owner. And I like what he did. So he and I, we did the Ludi concept of a barbecue place Mm -hmm. in uh, Sonoma, uh, actually Santa Rosa. And that was my first foray of getting really, getting the money together, starting a business from scratch, getting the licensing, the contracting, the permits, the whole whole thing. It was like, we're in big time now. And we were there for about five years. And then... Uh, you know, things happen in the restaurant industry. It's a tough, tough business. Right. I mean, I've heard the statistic 95% of restaurants don't survive the first year, right? right. I don't even know if that's true, but and if you know it's high, true you because it's around. so high. And I mean, it's pretty funny because one of my good friends owns a chain of restaurants in um, the Sacramento greater area, Dos Coyotes, Bobby Coyote. And we, we laugh. It's like the new break even is successful. Right. Where people <laughs> people don't even get it. Like, you know, all the hard work. I mean, you might your break even might be a million dollars. Yeah. And then you make money. Right. Like there that's so many covers and so much money just to lay out and then hope you make a dime. Right. It's so finicky with food prices sky high, 
minimum wage in California is huge, but it's not even that. It's like the insurance, Social Security, workman's comp, everybody who makes that type of money, $15 an hour, just to kind of come in with no skills, yeah, makes that type of money and then add another three or four bucks per hour. And then people wonder why a hamburger is $30. Right. Yeah. You know, not to mention the initial investment invest- of the of restaurant equipment right. and, and the equipment and the whole thing. I mean, literally the setup. I mean, my place, it maybe cost five or six hundred thousand. And that was in a situation that was in a next gen uh, restaurant. So it already was a failed restaurant, which mm-hmm. it has kind of see the guts of the business, electrical, plumbing, bathrooms, all that stuff. You just roll in and you put in your equipment and your concept and that sort of thing. But that's still probably five or six hundred thousand right. dollars. Yeah. But it'd be two million if it wasn't. And so coming back with Ludi, it was a proven concept in Woodland. It did really well. Uh, Woodland's kind of a soft market, he always said, because it's a smaller town. But then coming to Santa Rosa, and that was starting to be kind of the boom times of mm-hmm. Santa Rosa and the wine country, considered the wine country. And so we were very successful for four or five years. And then things all come to an end. So after years of hard work and finally achieving his dream of owning his own restaurant, it all went bust. For a little while, Lee helped open a place called the Geyser Smokehouse, which is no longer there. But ultimately, he had to file for personal bankruptcy. He said he had over a half a million dollars in personal debt from the Ludi's barbecue closing in Santa Rosa. He moved back home to Davis and got a job working as the opening general manager for Bistro 33. And he began to save money, biding his time to hopefully open another barbecue restaurant in Davis, hoping that the time would come when he would get a second chance, maybe have a second act. Usually a lot of people don't have a second chance or something like that. It's devastating. You know, I was 40 years old. I moved back to Davis. My plan was to get that barbecue place going. I had to move in with my dad, who was like 75 at the time. <laughs> Being 40 years old, moving in with your dad was, you know. Back kinda, in your hometown. Kind of like you know, a little humbling experience. But I had one shot, and he just said, listen, I'll back you 100%. I'll give you 100000 bucks." And coming in with a bankruptcy as well, and not much money, the odds against me to even open a business are next to nothing. Yeah, you're because not going to no, get any conventional loans No one's going to give me a loan. Even a landlord might. A lo- well, that was another thing. A landlord would never take my signature. So my dad flat out said, if you can find, look for a business and sign a lease without me co-signing or whatever, I'll give you the money. Okay. So I was determined to find something. And meanwhile, I worked at the bistro, long hours. So in the meantime, in my spare time, which wasn't much spare time because being a GM of opening a restaurant, that's 24-7, seven days a week. Right. Again, donating your soul to someone else's business. But living at home, all the money I got out of there, I rat-holed away in a bank so I could have more money. And I heard about the concept of yogurt in L.A. I knew it was red hot, and that was 2008. And I thought, hmm, maybe that that would be something. And then parlay it into that would be just temporary to get a restaurant going. So I was searching around, and I looked Woodland, Sacramento for a spot. I only needed, only needed 1,000 square feet. And I said, I could have 1,000 no's. I just need one yes. Yeah. So I 
stop talking about it with my friends because I would say, oh, I'm going to open this yoga shop. And all my friends kind of kind of like, what? Right. Yoga. They kind of laughed at me in a way. Like, yeah. what are you thinking? You come from big restaurants, bars. And I said, those are ego businesses. So it was everybody I talked to was always trying to talk me out of doing mm. this. So I had no money. And I looked all over Yolo County in Sacramento. And I actually was going to be in Woodland, but because I couldn't find anything in Davis. And finally, this little old house that was a existing restaurant, they had three restaurants in there that failed. And it was a great location right across from Farmer's Market in Davis, California. But it was a dead area. Right. Even though it was across from the Farmer's Market, Did, it wasn't in a, it was just off, off of where downtown in Davis enough where, yeah. And so when I opened that in 2008, it was about the same time, six months before that, Burgers and Brew came to town. And the guys who owned Crepeville across the street saw this little old house that was like, the guy was a, it was a teriyaki chicken joint. And so they came <laughs> in, and then I opened, and all of a sudden, we just blew up that corner. Yeah. And at that time, I was the third yogurt shop, and everybody was saying yogurt. I, it was like people would come and laugh at me, like, what are you thinking? I mean, what, are, you know? And I said, just you wait. I said, I will be probably the last one standing here. All of a sudden, there was like eight yogurt shops. And I'd always say, well, how many pizza places are in Davis? Right. How many, how many burger places are in Davis? You know, that type of thing. And they weren't hearing it. They were always digging on me. But I, I didn't listen to them. So I knew what I was going to do with all my experience in the restaurant industry. And we're talking 30 years probably. I turned that business not just in a yogurt shop, kind of like an event. You go there and you, it's a wow factor. You go there, we have 101 toppings. No one has 101 toppings. We always run a non-dairy vegan, gluten-free option. We always have the main chocolate and vanilla, and then we have two specialty flavors. And you walk in and you create a wow factor. You go, we, we created an experience mm. of going in there. And I think knowing really what it takes to run a business and my shortcomings of bankruptcy and that type of thing in business, I really did an organic open. I mean, literally, I had uh, my friend Dina and her friend paint my place. Right. Because I had no money to pay anybody. I was basically doing the construction myself. It's tough to open a business when you have no money. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. like like you're down there painting your place. You know, I was making the deals myself, trying to get used equipment, trying to, like, it was my last shot. And I think being behind the eight ball so much is why we're so successful today. People, you know, we have these stamp cards, and if you stamp 10 times, you get a free one. And it's very interesting. People come from who used to go to UC Davis for four years, always come back on the way to Tahoe and stop at Yolaberry. Uh, yeah. Take nice. pictures of themselves with their kids now. And they always say, yeah, this card has been all over Europe and back twice. <laughs> you know, and I still have it. And it's all raggedy looking. Right, yeah. Like, I mean, you know, so I get all that type of stuff. So that's why we're so different than the chain yogurt shops. It's never been a fad. They always say it's a fad. Right, because that's how I always thought yeah. it. When I was a kid, there was like a few yogurt shops. TCBY, right, right. was the big franchise. And there was a couple yogurt shops. And then... They all sort of went away, and then, right, sort of Pinkberry kind Pink of brought Berry back brought yogurt. it back to life. And then Big Spoon here introduced the concept, which which you built upon, which was... Self-serve. Yeah, why have someone back there and just charge for, you know, just like 
charge it by the ounce right. and let people give people all these toppings and do it themselves. It's the all-American buffet. That's, That's what America right. likes. It's the golden corral of yogurt. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So, like, what a concept is that? Yeah. Yeah, and so what? how have you not just survived but thrived when anyone who's looking around would feel like, well, yogurt, I mean, Big Spoon is closed. I live in Natomas. All three yogurt shops in Natomas have closed in the last five years, including a Big Spoon. That original Big Spoon location, I know you went to at one point that kind of helped spark like, yeah. oh, this is really, I, I see why this could work yeah. in East Sacramento is Pachamama Coffee now, you know? Yeah. So why do you think, and as you mentioned, at one point there were eight yogurt shops in Davis. Yeah. And now what, are you the only one um, left in Davis? Pretty much there's another one called Cultivate. Yeah. Know. They're Pinkberry-ish, I think, yeah. in their style. But yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think, well, I know the reason why we're successful is because there's there's ownership presence there. Mm. Um, I invest in the community really well. And um, just working with managing my people, when you come in, you get a great experience each time. You're being welcomed. You make every customer feel special coming into your place, which the chains can never do. Yogurt hasn't gone away. It's sure. a dessert. I mean, it's recession-proof. Yeah. But the people have done such a bad job of owning and managing these yogurt shops that people don't want to go there anymore. They want to go to other places. You know, maybe they're not run right. There's no atmosphere. There's kids sitting on the phone texting. They're dirty. There's no energy, no atmosphere. Why would you spend money there? Right. You know, and I tell people, I say, if you want to buy a franchise, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm retired. Now I'm going to open my own business. They have no idea what it's like to open your own business. I tell them, and people ask me. I said, you want to work seven days a week 10 to 12 hours a day, because that's what you need to do. You can't buy a franchise and just throw a manager in there and throw a couple kids in there and walk away and collect all the money. It doesn't work that way because there's not going to be anything left right. after you pay payroll and food and your food costs and your franchise fees and the whole thing. And so that's why most of them failed, where – our business after 13 years is still consistently doing the same type of numbers. So over the years, Yoloberry has always done really well. Lee attributes a lot of that to his staff and his efforts to treat them in ways that he wasn't always treated working in restaurants. He said he's helped staffers with everything from bailing someone out of jail to helping them buy a car. He said happy staff means good service and good service means happy customers. But Yolaberry hasn't been without its struggles. At one point, he joined up with an investor who wanted to help them expand. They built a frozen yogurt food truck, and they built another location in Berkeley, California. But then the investor had other ideas of how he wanted to run the business. And Lee and his partner had to walk away after several years of hard work and some money invested. So he poured all his energy back into his main Yolaberry location to make it the best it could be. And then, after running it for a decade, Lee had a serious personal setback. After an accident, Lee found himself in the hospital, suffering from a blood infection. The sepsis got so bad that they had to amputate his leg below the knee. Lee was in the hospital for over a month and couldn't really work for nearly nine months. And his wife had to take over running the business and his friends helped out where they could, but he didn't know if the business would survive. So I asked him how that experience changed his outlook and how Yolaberry kept going through that and then ultimately through COVID. I want to go back just a little bit for a minute and ask, you're someone who has a pretty intense work ethic, obviously, and you're 
40 years of really hard work, you know, hard living at times in there and you lose your leg below the knee. How did that change your perspective just on the rest of your life, your business, sort of how you wanted to live to, to go through something like that? You know, it's really heartbreaking a lot. I mean, I, I didn't know where my future was going to be. I know that I was really sick and some of the doctors would come from the hospital and they were my customers. Hmm. And I, I had these stories where one of the doctors who came and operated on me, I was like almost dead. And it was chilling the way that what they said. A couple doctors told us later that someone said, hey, look, it's the guy who owns Yolaberry. We got to save him. It was really funny <laughs> that like someone in Sacramento knew of me. And here we are taking this leg off because sepsis is coming in. Mm. And, you know, I was so sick. They told me that I was the sickest guy that they worked on at Sutter ICU that ever walked out of here alive. Wow. And that gave me chills just talking about it because they, those, that's the, what those guys do for a living. I mean, they have right. hundreds of people rolling in and out of there. And yeah, me, everyone's in serious shape that yeah. shows up there. And I was gung-ho. I think it's up here in my head. I have the passion of the industry. You know, I wasn't going to let a leg set me back, mm. you know. And I couldn't have done it without my wife. I mean, she's, Laura Winton, just unbelievable patience, perseverance. I mean, I have some true friends that I've had for 40, 30 years in Davis that were helping me you know, get back on my feet. And I don't take things for granted anymore. I don't really don't stress out about things as much because being, you know, when people talk about having a near-death experience, it's really true. It's really true, you know. I, I feel like I did have an out-of-body experience in the hospital. I, mm. I felt like I did die. It's very strange until it, when it happens to you. And, you know, work is not, you got to work, but it's also not everything. It's not who you and, are. Right. And step back and kind of evaluate your life moving forward. And don't try not to stress over things that are trivial as much. And I think that was really kind of an eye-opener for me to, to do. So I got back on my feet, got back into my business, and then got everything set up, working really well. And then COVID comes. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, you know, we can't get out of here without talking about how the hell you survive as a yogurt shop through COVID. Because that's, I mean, you've got a frozen dessert. Right. You're not thinking this is going to work for, we'll just transfer to DoorDash or delivery. You wouldn't right, think that right. would work. But. So, so then I'm thinking, you know, COVID, I didn't want to discount COVID, but I've been through so much with losing my leg and my almost my life and being bankrupt from another restaurant and working my butt off, COVID shows up, and it was like, I guess it's a big deal. I mean, it is a big deal. People are dying. I'm not saying that it wasn't. But what what I've been through already, COVID was like, oh, it's just kind of a, you know, let's get through it. Right, let's figure it out. Let's figure it out. You know, we have to adjust as we go. I think the restaurant industry in a whole just got, well, we got riveted with closures and you're open one week and then you're closed the next. And, you know, how do you open a restaurant in a dining room and then have to close it next week yeah. with the unknown? The leadership up top was not favorable to restaurants, and it's probably not even their fault. It's just it was so unknown charted territory. 
And then the aspect of people fear of getting COVID. Like they didn't even want to leave their house. And I get it. You might have compromised immunity. I mean, I do even. I'm a diabetic with one leg. I can't fault people for worrying about their health. Right. To come to Yolaberry and make get yogurt. You know what I mean? I can't <laughs> right. yell at them for that. You right. know what I mean? You know, they might have somebody who is at home has cancer. They don't want to bring the virus to them, you know. I mean, so it was a very uncharted territory of what our industry was experiencing. The heartaches. I mean, people don't realize people have their whole lives invested in a business. Yeah. And not even a restaurant business, a small business, yeah. any business. I always tell people to walk the day in the life of a small business owner's shoes. Then you'd really get it why they try to charge these prices. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not trying to get rich. They're just trying to have a, you know. I know some restaurants flat out just said, fine, we're closing. Yeah, we're done. Right. We're not even going to be abused by these customers. People are yelling at us. That was the worst of yeah. the fallout because I, you know, worked in the industry and, and still have friends in going to Sac State and a lot of the kids that I was in class with and I knew my peers were working in anywhere from Starbucks to other restaurants. And the way people treated just your average staffer in retail or restaurants right. when things started to open up again was was pretty horrific. horrendous at times. Pretty horrific at times. And no one wanted to be abused. And so... So how, what did you guys do to, to adjust? Because so, I know eventually you reopened and you started doing to-go yogurt. And that's so, not your thing, right? Your thing is yeah. come in, pour your own. Right. So how did that work? So that was like I said to myself, you know, I remember the day. It happened March 17th. I'll never forget that day. Actually, it was at the Kings game that night. And the, <laughs> they cut, they didn't even start the game. So we're walking out of the arena. Didn't even open. We didn't have a tip-off. You know, we're talking March when – Things are rocking and rolling in the yogurt industry because it's big numbers. Everybody's coming. The four months out of the year is kind of tough because it's raining. I mean, we have our hardcore people that come all the time. Yeah. So we went, we got through all the crappy December, January, February, March. That's when we make our money. And they said we had to close down. And I'm like, close down? Okay. And then I just, I talked to the health, and they said, well, if you make them, um, you can sell them out the front door. Like, so no one can come in. And that is, like, not even my concept. Sure. My concept is you roll in, you fill up your own cup, you put all your toppings on it, and you wait and leave. Said, you know what? We're not, we'll close down for a week, and we'll readjust because we're going to start making the yogurts by hand in small, medium, large cups. And then putting toppings on the side in little two-ounce containers that the type ones you get. that Little salsa containers. Salsa containers. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to – who knows? that I'm not going to sit on my couch. I got bills to pay. I mean, I got mortgage. I got people to pay. I mean, I'm not going to sit there and just be closed. So we regrouped. I told everybody – and I employed everybody during this time. I didn't lay anybody off. I said, we're going to – just like a store. We're going to open a store. Meanwhile, you're improvising the whole time. You don't know if it's going to work. You just hope it works. Right. Yeah. So we put up a, a table, dragged out the POA system, and put it at the front door so you couldn't come. And then built a big sign, like a menu board, small, medium, large, with the price. And people would come up and order that way, and we'd make them. And it actually wasn't that bad. It was kind of fun in a way. Yeah. But people were so happy that we didn't close. 
People would come up and tell me, oh my God, they thought Yellowberry is done for good. I'd get emails, when do you open it up? I can't even handle it. I'm jonesing for my Yolaberry. <laughs> and it was very, very satisfying. It's very humbling. Yeah, to have that connection to the community. Yeah, I think is and so Davis cool. really stepped up for us. There was a thing called Healthy Davis Initiative, and it's still going on, where they got a partnership with the university and uh, grants from the federal government to do testing all the time. And a few of us businesses got to participate in some this gift card thing. And so the city bought thousands of dollars worth of gift cards from businesses. Wow. And then if you went to go tested, you got a, your choice of a gift card from Yolaberry or like Dos Coyotes or Tommy J's or various places. So we made this assembly line in the shop where the, normally the people go, the tables and chairs we pulled out and put everybody, all my workers in between doing yogurts. We would Just fill containers, fill little containers full of. So we had like a like a bin full of chocolate chips, a bin for the, you know, the strawberry. It was just like 101 toppings in little containers. Mm. And so we made them. And, you know, all of a sudden word got around that we were open. And then the line was out the door. And we couldn't make them fast enough. The line was down the street. So June 15th, we got the word that we could absolutely open back to full service. Mm. So we immediately did that. But people were still scared to come out. Yeah, sure. And it's just your, your shop's a small spot, small space to yeah, go in there. People, and granted, we, people don't eat in there which much, which is one of the benefits, already, right? And then we had – and then how are we going to – we held people at the door. We couldn't jam the people because we usually get three, 100 people roll – I mean hundreds of people roll there for through there a day. Right. So we're going to have to be open, but we're going to have to do it in a safe manner. So then we were able to open up. And people were coming in, and they were so happy. But some customers were actually like the old, the way we did it. They kind of like, like, oh, I kind of like when you just made it. Yeah, because it was sure. portion control too. Yeah. So yeah. another thing too, it was because some. I mean, that's part of the thing, Yolaberry, right? I mean, yeah. I think at one point fraternities and stuff almost had these contests of who could come in and make the make biggest that, yogurt, the biggest thing. yogurt. And right, right. And of course, the you know, <laughs> and uh, you know now, and the parents especially liked it because they didn't have to monitor their kids. It's always when they walk in, they the kids are always negotiating all the way up there. Mom, <laughs> I get hot fudge and yeah, caramel. Mom says. And I get, only M&Ms. two toppings, only right. two toppings. Right. And then it's like this big moderating <laughs> thing. The kids want it like, it's like the American buffet, man. You turn loo- a kid on loose yeah. on that. How do you expect him to like only get two toppings? Right. 101 toppings. How is he going to pick from there? So the, a lot of the customers kind of wish we would stay that way. But I told them it just didn't work for our concept. Yeah. You know, help but, you stay alive, but that's yeah. not the deal. Soon enough, you know, more and more people are coming than we had it well you could come in but everybody wears masks and now it's so relaxed kind of now that there's no more masks you know all my staff wears masks still sure yeah you know we're not the mask police we can't and that was another thing a lot of restaurants oh, nightmare getting having to work someplace yeah. minimum wage and tell some jerk that he had to put a mask on and get chewed out by him it's like come yeah, on man yeah and it was all the vaccination and who's not vaccinated, who's yeah. who, whatever. And so we told our employees, listen, we're not, you know, getting into that that debate. I, I told my wife it was just kind of one of those things is we still got to carry on our lives. Yeah. We can't let the virus run us. We got to run the virus. And COVID's a thing. We just got to adjust. 
Yeah. Just like I'm adjusting to my new life with my leg, we adjust with COVID. Right. And we just do it as we go. Yeah. So I like to ask at the end, I always like to ask the same four food related kind of rapid fire questions. What, and this is funny because I think yogurt could probably fall in this question for a lot of people, but what's your favorite cheap guilty pleasure? I am I I'm I love ice cream <laughs> in gelato. Everybody yeah. laughs. Like, what are you Yona yogurt shopping? It's like I'm always at the freezer aisle at Nugget picking out. And and I'm a diabetic, right? So my wife is always saying, "We don't need ice cream. What are you doing?" And if you look in my freezer at home, I literally have probably 15 different Ben and Jerry's containers, all half eaten, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what's on, what's the flip side of that? What's the, your favorite thing to eat if money is no object? What are you going to go out and get? Oh, man. Uh, sushi is one of the big things. I go to McCoonies. They know me really well there. And I'm not trying to get a shout out to McCoonies, but sure, I'm yeah, just no, telling fine. you one of the chefs, Jiao, there is the main chef of all the McCoonies. And, you know, he gets tired of making the same old rolls all the time for the masses. And I go in there and say, hey, yeah, just make me something. Make me whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. And so this platter will come out, and it'll be pretty outrageous. That's cool. What's your favorite dish to cook at home? I, I like to do a lot of seafood. I always like to go to farmer's markets where I find out where they have fresh catch. And I, so I do a lot of what's in season, and I cook that. How do you usually do it? Do you do it in the oven, or do you do, like, cast iron? I do cast iron. Yeah. I do a cast iron. I do being a chef. I always use – that's how I kind of got my wife, Laura. I'd really impress her. I'd always pour it on thick and make four-course meals. There you go. After she got off work. <laughs> Ask her if I do that now. Probably not. <laughs> I had to woo her, you know. That's right. What's the dish from your childhood you wish you could go back in time and eat? I used to make apple pancakes. When I was little. Oh, no way. Yeah, I would go and make them from scratch. I'd wake up in the morning and get my recipe out, and I was probably about seven or eight. We had an apple tree, and so when they were in season, I would make homemade apple pancakes. That sounds and awesome. And grate them and eat them. Nice. <laughs> All right, well, Lee, thank you so much for coming on the Dine One Six. Thanks, Max, for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Dine One Six. If you're a yogurt fan and you don't live in Davis, there may be some good news coming your way. It didn't make it into the episode, but Lee does plan to expand Yola Berry to more locations in Roseville and possibly Sacramento, and fill some of the void left by the shops that have closed over the last few years. If you like the show today, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on YouTube if that's easiest for you, or visit our website, at dine16.com. Those links are in the show notes. Feel free to rate and review the show. That helps more people find us. Or just tell a friend, you know? Get some frozen yogurt and tell them to listen to the show. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Both handles are at dine16. And as I always say, this isn't just my show, it's yours. So if you have an idea for a guest or a topic you'd like me to cover, reach out to me at max at dine16.com. The opening and closing theme music is by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens, and other music was provided by Color Film Music. I'll be back with a new episode next Friday. So until then, eat something you love with someone you love. <laughs>